see my slides up there, Mike? Good? Okay, good. All right, uh, let's have daily Bible readers before we get going. You know, I'll tell you a story while he's counting. It's been a while. The other day I was listening to a sermon and it was about complaining. You know, I never complain. But there was one thing that this guy mentioned that really just got all over me. He talked about how we shouldn't complain about the temperature in the church building. Well, because we have padded pews and a roof over our head and, you know, all that sort of thing. I guess he's right, but he sure hurt my feelings, I'll tell you that much. (laughs) Stepped all over my big toe. All right, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the day that you've given us. We thank you for the blessings you've given us. We're thankful for the time that we have together this evening and to study your word and to uh, fellowship with one another. Father, we're we're so thankful for uh, your wisdom and the church that you uh, that existed in your mind we're thankful for the fellowship that we have with one another the bond of brotherhood and we pray that you will help us to love one another and to serve one another to care for one another and to always put the kingdom first we ask that you would be with those of our congregation who are not able to be with us tonight uh, those who are ill father we ask your blessings on them those who are grieving please be with them as well we pray father that um, you would help the congregation to be strong help us to be Uh, committed, help us to be convicted, help us, Father, to serve you to the best of our ability. We ask that you would bless our efforts. We ask that you would be with us this evening as we study. We pray that you would bless us in this time together. And, Father, in all things, your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are studying, as I said, the book of Zephaniah this evening. And in case you're wondering how in the world we went from, where's Steve? What did you teach last quarter? Jeremiah and Lamentations, right? If you're wondering how in the world we got from Jeremiah and Lamentations to Zephaniah, I thought I'd take a minute and show you. So if you remember, we are working our way chronologically, at least to the best of our ability, through the Old and New Testament. And this is the chart that uh, it's based off of. These are the books, some of the books that we've already, um, that we've already looked at, Joel, Obadiah, Jonah, Amos, and Hosea. And then, Isaiah and Micah, and you see the chart. So we're going to be studying Zephaniah and Daniel together this quarter on Wednesday nights. And uh, I think we should be able to make it through both of them without any major problems at all. Okay? So that's where we're going. And then, of course, right after Daniel, we have Babylonian captivity and all of the things associated with that. And then we'll have Ezekiel and Habakkuk and some other books that we haven't covered. But that's that's the idea. That's how we got to where we're going or how we got to where we are right now. I'll leave that up for just a minute. All right, let's talk about the book of Zephaniah just for a couple of moments, all right? The name Zephaniah means literally Jehovah hides. Jehovah hides is the meaning of the name Zephaniah. A couple of interesting points about Zephaniah. Zephaniah is the great-grandson of King Hezekiah, one of the good kings, 
not the best king of, of Judah, the southern kingdom. And Zephaniah, according to Zephaniah chapter 1 and verse number 1, does his work during the days or during the reign of Josiah. Now, what do you remember about Josiah? Huh? Okay. Son of Ammon. What else? One of the better kings? There you go. Josiah is a restorer. Josiah is the king, if you recall, that uh, the, the law of God was found and uh, sent to him, and he read from it, and then he enacted all of the reforms and things in Judah. Now, depending on uh, who, how you date Zephaniah, some might say, well, Zephaniah probably wrote sometime before Josiah in, uh, instituted those reforms. And by the way, Josiah is, is on the throne from about 640 to 609. 640 to 609, that's his timeline. 640 to 609 B.C. So some will say Zephaniah probably wrote at the beginning, before uh, Josiah enacted these reforms. Some will say, no, he probably wrote toward the end, like around 610 B.C., maybe 609. Either way, it doesn't make that big of a difference, but just so you know, we have a little bit of a, of a, of a flexibility in the time window with Zephaniah. But he's definitely during the days of Josiah, so that's going to be 640 to 609. And you can read about the reforms of Josiah, by the way, in 2 Kings chapters 22 and 23. Now, what's the purpose of Zephaniah's book? Zephaniah sort of reminds us of Joel a little bit in that Zephaniah has a lot to say about judgment and particularly about the day of the Lord. Zephaniah's purpose is to address the sins of Judah and to announce the coming day of the Lord, which of course is going to take the form of Babylon, right? He's a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. Remember, the northern kingdom goes to Assyria. The southern kingdom goes to Babylon. Zephaniah is warning them of that judgment. He's letting them know that it's coming. All right, now let's look at Zephaniah chapter 1 and work our way uh, through the text. Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. In these six verses, Zephaniah will give warning that the day of the Lord is coming. He says, The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of uh, Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place. The names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests, those who worship the hosts of heaven on the housetops, 
Those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but who also swear by Milcom, those who have uh, turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord, nor inquired of him. A couple of things to note, not only in this section, but throughout the book. If you notice, over and again, we have this phrase, I will. In fact, I will will show up some 20 times in the contents of the book of Zephaniah. And I don't think it would be stretching it too far to say that there are at least two things that ought to come to mind when we note uh, the fact that this just keeps coming up. It's God speaking, and so it's reminding us, I would say, number one, of God's sovereignty, but number two, of God's intention. What do we mean by God's sovereignty? What is God's sovereignty? What is that uh, talking about? Okay, we're talking about his power, we're talking about his ability. We're talking about his right, if you will. Sometimes we talk about God's sovereign right to rule. So keep in mind that we have God speaking to the people. They're his people, and he is to be their king. But what have we learned many, many chapters and books ago, all the way back to the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 8, you remember, where the people had a problem with obeying the right, or recognizing the proper king. Do you remember? What happens? Yeah, all the way back in 1 Samuel, I think I said 2 Samuel, but all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, you remember that the people said to, uh, the people said to Samuel, we want you to give us a king. We want, to be, we want a king because we want to be like all the other nations. And of course, Samuel wasn't at all pleased by that, and he uh, spoke with the Lord about it, and what was the Lord's answer to Samuel? Do it, because they've not rejected you, they've rejected what? They've rejected me. So these are God's people. We could go all the way back even to passages like um, Leviticus chapter 11 and Exodus chapter 19 and several other passages where God will let them know, you, you are my people. I am the Lord your God, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Remember Leviticus 11, uh, 44 and 45? They were God's people, and all the while God has, has been faithful to them and provided for them and watched over them. And what has their reaction been to all of that? Well, they haven't held up their end of the bargain, to put it mildly, right? So now we've gotten to this point where God is speaking to his people and he is emphasizing, I'm God, I'm the creator, I'm the king that you should be acknowledging, but you're not. And so here's my, number two, here's my intention. Here's what I plan to do. And then in verses two and following, uh, particularly down through verse number, um, particularly down through verse number four, he gives some language that will describe the sort of comprehensive, all-encompassing nature of this day that's going to come. Which, by the way, when we see the term day of the Lord, we need to think judgment, judgment from the Lord. That's the idea. So this judgment is going to, verse 2, utterly consume everything. 
He wants this image in their mind to be that, look, this day of the Lord is not going to be something that is light. It's not going to be something that even applies to just a few people. And we'll see why here in just a moment. But it's going to be something that is all-encompassing to everyone and everything. Then he lists some particulars in verse, uh, in verse 4 and in verse 5. At the end of, or in the middle of verse 4, beginning in middle, you have Judah and you have Jerusalem. Judah being the kingdom, Jerusalem being the capital city. You have every trace of Baal from this place. So obviously idol worship, as we've seen in several other studies, has made its way into Judah. And then we have, in the latter part of verse number 4, we have two different kinds of priests. We have the idolatrous priests... And then it just says, depending on your translation, it just says the priests. I believe the King James Version says priests, and the New King James has pagan priests in italics. But the idea here seems to be that there were both in Jerusalem priests that did their service to Baal and priests who were at least supposed to be offering their service to God. So you have Baal worship and you have what is at least intended to be worship of God all together in the same place, and perhaps even in the same temple, as some have suggested. Now look at verse 5 and 6. You have three different kinds of worshipers mentioned in verse 5 and 6. Three different kinds of worshipers. You have number one in verse 5, those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops. This is talking about those who worship the stars which uh, incidentally was forbidden in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse number 19. You have in verse number 2, though, I'm sorry, verse, the latter part of verse number 5, the second group, those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but also swear by Milcom. Now, who is Milcom? Yeah, it's idol. Uh, it is uh, a reference to the king of the Baal gods, if you will, the, the chief of the Balaam. So what does this tell you? Those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but also by... What's, what's that describing? What does this mean? Yeah, so we have people who are double-minded, right? To borrow the language from James chapter 1. Huh? Okay, yeah, they're, they're, they're polytheists, really, in practice. What we have here are people who have divided loyalty. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and following? He said, no man can serve, what? Two masters. And he's talking about God and he's talking about mammon. And of course, mammon is a word that refers to materialism, the things of the world. You can't serve God and you can't serve the world at the same time. Why? Because he says, where your treasure is, there what? There your heart will be also. Now, what is the significance of Jesus saying that your heart will be where your treasure is? Okay, 
Going through the motions, yes. What, what does it mean? What is the connection of your heart and your, and your treasure? How do those go together? Okay, it, it's all about investment, right? What you treasure, right, the thing that you treasure the most is the thing that you're going to value the most, it's going to be most precious to you, and you are going to invest your time and your energy and so on because that's what means the most. Well, it makes sense then that Jesus would say you can't serve both God and mammon or worldliness or materialism because you can't give God half of your heart and the world the other, right? You can't do that. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Matthew 6, verse 33, the latter part of that context. All right, so how do we apply that, take that principle and apply that to what's going on in Zephaniah chapter 1? They're worshiping God, or at least going through the motions, and they're trying to worship Baal. You can't do that. Because with God, it's an all-or-nothing proposition. And that's what these folks miss. And again, this isn't anything new necessarily, because we've seen this over and over again throughout the books of the prophets, both major and minor, where you have the people that are willing to at least go through the motions of worshiping, sacrificing, and so on to Jehovah, but their heart, their mind, their intention is somewhere uh, far, far away from that. And so God will condemn them for it. And uh, there's a a good lesson for us in there as well. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I think so. In fact, at the, in the first three verses of chapter 2, he'll talk to, to some folks who at least were listening to some degree. I think so. All right, look at the third group. I'm in Zephaniah chapter 1 and verse 6. Those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of Him. All right, so in the first group, verse 5, we have those who are worshiping the stars, astrology. In the second group, in the latter part of verse 5, we have those who have sort of a divided loyalty. They're trying to worship both God and Baal. But then in the third group, in verse number 6, we have those who are completely indifferent. They have turned back from following the Lord. They have not, they've not even made an attempt to seek the Lord or inquire after Him. Okay, I'm not, I'm not totally understanding the connection you're making. Part, part of it is I can't hear very well and I can't read your lips. <laughs> okay, they're following God. Oh, yes, yes, okay, Second Peter chapter 2, yes. Yes, right, right. Okay, yeah, I see what you're saying now, yeah. So you're right, they were following the Lord, but at some point they said, eh, we're not going to do this anymore. They turned their back, and they made no effort at all to inquire of it. It sort of reminds me of uh, Romans chapter 1 and the Gentiles, we won't go over there because we don't have time, 
But if you go through, uh, let's see, about verse 20, 21 or so through the end of the chapter, you will notice that uh, two or three times there is mention made of the fact that God had revealed himself to the Gentiles, that they knew that he had revealed himself, but that they chose not to acknowledge him as God. They chose not to honor him, and they chose not to be thankful. And I like to think of it as uh, sort of the light switch. You may remember this. We've talked about it before. When I look at that, the, the picture in my mind is someone going to a wall and turning the light switch on and saying, you know what, all right, we'll try God out. We'll turn the light switch on. We'll see how we like it. And then they made a decision, and they go back, they just, they just turn him right off. They refused to acknowledge his existence and his sovereignty, and they refused to uh, submit their will to his will. And so, in tandem with that, Paul will say, God gave them up. God gave them over. God gave them, uh, God gave them away. And, they, and that's right, and they have no excuse. But the point is, it's not that they didn't have an opportunity. It's not that they didn't have knowledge. It's not that the ability uh, wasn't there. It's that they just simply chose to turn their backs because, well, that's what they wanted to do. All right, so that's the first six verses. He says, judgment is coming. And he tells us that this judgment, when it comes, it is going to be uh, all-encompassing. It's going to be comprehensive. And he says uh, in the latter part of the section, verses, uh, the latter part of verse 4 down through verse 6, he mentions the priests, he mentions the kind of worshipers. And I don't want to push this too far, but I would, uh, I would, maybe, I would maybe just note the fact that perhaps it's significant that the things that are mentioned in the first section of this book all have to do with worship in some way. We have the priests, we have those who are worshiping the hosts, we have those who worship the Lord but also Baal, and we have those who have not even worshiped the Lord, they don't even try. But all of these things are connected in some way, it seems, with worshiping God. Yeah, for sure. Okay, now look at the next section. It's going to be verse 7 through verse 13. Verse 7 through verse 13. In this section, God is going to identify four groups of people. He's going to single them out. Let's read it together. He says, Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord has prepared, his, uh, prepared a sacrifice, He has invited His guests and it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. In the same day I will punish all those who leap over the threshold, who fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. And there shall be on that day, says the Lord, the sound of a mournful cry from the fish gate, a wailing from the second quarter, and a loud crashing from the hills. Uh, wail, you inhabitants of Mektesh. For all the merchant people are cut down, and all those who handle money are cut off. And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. Therefore their good shall become 
spoil in their houses a desolation. They shall build houses, but not inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards, but not drink the wine. All right, several things in this context. First of all, look at verse 7. It stands out, and rightly so. God says, be silent in the presence of the Lord. Why? Because the day of the Lord has come, the judgment that he's described in the first six verses is near. That's the idea. But then look at the second part of the verse, because I think it, it explains the first. He says in the second part, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice and invited his guests. So the question is, who or what is the sacrifice and who are the guests? Okay. I, I think you're heading in the right direction. It would seem that Judah is the sacrifice. Remember, we're talking about God and God's people and God's sovereignty and God's intention. Judah is the sacrifice. Who are the guests? Well, probably Babylon. Perhaps it's even a call to everyone in the world. In fact, in the next chapter, we're going to have judgment mentioned on all the nations, and he's going to cover all four uh, directions of the major directions of the compass. It could perhaps be a call that says, "Look, I want everyone to stand. I want everyone to stand up and pay very close attention to what's about to happen here. After all, these are these are God's people." Now he lists some of the uh, some of the uh, uh, specific groups in verse uh, in verse eight. There's royalty, royalty, the leadership. It shall be in that day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. That uh, there at the end, all such as are clothed with foreign apparel seems to be. A reference to the, the royalty of Judah, those who had adopted the ways, the philosophies, the ruling methodologies, if you will, of the foreign nations that were around them. They're not conducting the kingdom in a way that a, a, a godly king or royalty would. They're doing it in the way that the people of the nations around them would. So he says they're going to be punished. Then in verse number 9, we have what probably is a reference to thieves. He says, In the same day I will punish all those who leap over the threshold, who fill their master's houses with violence and with deceit. Hopping over the threshold or leaping over the threshold is very likely perhaps a reference to breaking and entering, if you will. And then also, of course, filling their master's houses with violence and deceit, these are those who spread violence throughout the land. Now look at verse 10 and 11. We have uh, merchants. There will be on that day, says the Lord, the sound of a mournful cry from the fish gate. The fish gate, interestingly enough, was located likely on the northern wall toward the toward the northeast, the northeastern part of the wall in Jerusalem. And the significance of that is, anybody know where Babylon came from? Yeah, from the northeast. A wailing from the second quarter and a loud crashing from the hill, hills. Wail, you inhabitants of Maktesh, 
For all the merchant people are cut down, and all those who handle money are cut off. Now, I don't really know, I'm not sure that it is known for sure what Megtesh is or was, but contextually it obviously has something to do with, with merchants, with buying and selling and commerce. Let me ask you a question. What have we learned from the other books of the prophets in regard to the buying and selling and uh, commerce uh, practices and activities of God's people at this time? Okay, they were, they were corrupted. They were underhanded. We had injustice. We have the rich stealing from the poor. We have a, a lack of judgment and so many other things. So God is, is calling that into account. Okay, now look at verse 12 and 13. Verse 12 and 13, we have the indifferent. And, uh, uh, yeah, the indifferent. He says, it will come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. Therefore, their goods will become spoil and their houses a desolation. They will build houses, but not inhabit them. Uh, they will plant vineyards, but not drink their wine. All right. I will search Jerusalem with lamps. In other words, there will be no hiding from this. I'm going to punish those who are settled in complacency. Well, in what way are they settled in complacency? They say in their heart, the Lord will not do good or evil. Now, there's something very interesting about that. Do you remember back in uh, verse number 5, in the latter part of the verse, we have those who are worshiping by uh, trying to worship the Lord and Baal at the same time. Sort of a divided loyalty, if you will. What they're saying, or what, what that means in verse number 12, the Lord will not do good or evil, is that basically the Lord doesn't have either power or inclination to do one or the other. Now, we saw in the first six verses of this chapter that the Lord does have both power and inclination to do whatever it is that he, see, that he, that he uh, sees fit. But another thing, let me ask you this. What else do people, do men worship that has neither power nor inclination? Idolatry. So you could perhaps make an argument that what the people have begun to do is they have begun to look at Jehovah through the same glasses that they use to look at idolatry. And so they're making them equal. So then by way of application, maybe a good question to ask would be something like this. What is our view of God? What is our view of God? Do we see God as someone who is sovereign? Do we see God as someone who is powerful? Do we see God as someone who is loving and kind, but also who is just and who is a God of wrath? Do we see Him... Uh, in a way that is balanced and biblical? Or do we see him as something totally different? You remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and he said, Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what did Jesus tell him? Yeah. He said, uh, 
love the Lord your God, so on. I've done all these. I've kept the commandments even from my youth up. What do I lack yet? Sell all that you have and give your goods to the poor. And then what was his reaction? It says he went away sorrowful. Now, I don't want to read too much into this, but I've often wondered what was he expecting Jesus to say before he ever went and asked the question. I don't know the answer to that, but I think that we can say he wasn't expecting for Jesus to say, sell all that you have and then give to the poor. I think it's fair at least to say that. And so again, my point is, there are a lot of people in our world that have a certain understanding of who Jesus is and what he requires. But the reality of who Jesus is and what Jesus requires does not always match up with what we think or what we, what we wish. I got in trouble with this one time, so I'll be more careful with it this time. It's sort of like, it's, it's sort of like whenever you are dating and engaged and you're, you're anticipating what marriage is going to be like. And then you get married and you figure out that the reality of marriage is usually very different than what you thought it was going to be. Now, I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean you get hit with a, a, a dose of reality, you see. All right, so back to, the, back to the point here. How do we view him? Do we view him in the way that he describes himself, or have we, do we sort of carve him out in our own image? That seems to be what the uh, people of Judah had done. Okay, look at verse 14 to 18. In verse 14 to 18, he's going to emphasize again the nearness and the severity of the coming judgment, of the coming day of the Lord. He says, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and it hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty men will cry out, That day is a day of wrath a day of trouble and duress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. I will bring distress upon men and they will walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like the dust and their flesh like refuge, but neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land will be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. So, verses 1 to 6, judgment is coming. Wrath is coming. Verses 7 to 13, it is coming for everyone even the rich and the wealthy and the powerful who think that they're exempt. And then in verses 14 to 18, nothing that you have will be able to rescue you from the wrath that is to come. So neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. What's the application for us? The day of the Lord's wrath for the people of Judah, when Zephaniah wrote, was pointing toward the coming of Babylon. What about us? Not a trick question. Yeah, there's a judgment day coming, right? There's a judgment day coming, and verses 1 to 6, it is going to be, uh, it is coming and it's going to be severe for some. 
It is coming, verses 7 through uh, 13, and no one will be exempt. Everyone will have to give an account of themselves before God. 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 5 will, will tell us. And then finally, verses 14 to 18, there will be no bargaining. There will be no second chances. There will be no ability that we have to be able to escape whatever the final judgment is for us. So, you might just write down a passage like Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Emphasis on the work. Not because it's merit, but because it emphasizes the fact that as a song that uh, they sing in Jamaica, if I should die and my soul shall be lost, it's nobody's fault, can you finish it? But mine. Do we deserve to be in heaven with the Lord for eternity? No, no, that's not the case at all. But, but Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins so that we can be with the Lord in heaven for eternity. But our eternal destination is going to depend upon the choices that we make and how we choose to live our life. And there's not anyone who's going to be able to bear the responsibility for that besides us. All right, look at chapter 2. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, that's our first section, and we won't have time to finish it all, but we'll start it at least. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, we have a call to repentance. And there are several things that are packed into these three verses. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O undesirable nation. I want to stop there just for a moment. Look close. When he says, gather yourselves together, the language, the wording that he uses in the original text, the meaning is something like this. Gather like straw. Now, why is that important? Because in the next verse, he's going to talk about the chaff, right? What's the image of the wheat and the chaff? What, how does the Bible use the image of the wheat and the chaff? Yeah, the wheat is the good that you keep, and the chaff is that which goes away, blows away in the wind, right? Right now, is Judah wheat or chaff? Or chaff. So when he says, gather yourselves together... And the implication, again, being original language, it doesn't really come out in English, gather yourselves like straw, what does that mean? I'm not just saying, hey, come, because we're going to have this meeting together that isn't really all that important, but I want you to be there anyway. He is calling them to come together to listen for a very important reason, and that reason is repentance. That reason is to change. That's the goal. So he says, gather yourselves together. Uh, yes, gather together, O oh, undesirable nation. The word undesirable, another word that, uh, depending on your translation, is sort of uh, great in meaning. But the idea really is to be shameless or to be insensitive. Shameless or insensitive. And then look at the word nation. The word nation in the Hebrew text of this passage, interestingly enough, is a word that is normally not, it's normally never used to refer to the nation of God's people. It is normally a word that is used to refer to everybody else, to refer to the pagan nations. Now, why in the world would God address, I heard the bell, by the way, 
Why in the world would God address His own people in the way that He addresses the pagan nations? Because they had, for all intents and purposes, become the pagan nations. That's exactly right. Okay, thanks for your uh, time and attention, and uh, Lord willing, we'll be back here again next Wednesday evening.